Today's scripture is Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, so before I bring our speaker on stage, uh, a few years ago, I was given uh, a book, and my friend said, if you read this book, I guarantee you, you will like it. It was called Pursuing Justice, a uh, really good book, and I read it, and not just liked it, loved it, because I was looking for a book that would help frame the conversation of how we as the church engage into social justice issues and justice in general from a biblical standpoint. Um, the guy who wrote the book, um, we happened to be a part of, at the same time, joining this smaller group of pastors around the West Coast who would gather together and pray together and have fun together and so forth. And so I got a chance to meet Ken. Um, and here's the deal. When you go to a lot of these pastors, pastors conference, um, you usually hear somebody speak. It's really great. And you think, man, I'm going to go and have a drink with this guy. No, a good drink, like nothing. I shouldn't drink. Um, and then and get to know this person really well. But usually they don't have time or they have other things that they're doing, which is totally fine. Kim was a guy that gave me time and space and his number. And we've been able to contact and become really good friends. And he has a co-lead pastor at his church, Pete Kelly, who's also here with them from Oregon, from Bend, Oregon, uh, to be with us. And it's been a great time. And I wanted him to come, one, because he's uh, unbelievably smarter than I am. He talks significantly slower than me, so it'll be a good change of pace. Uh, we look alike, but that's about it. Um, and I just want you guys to give, give you a, just a warm, would you guys give him a warm welcome? Here's why. You can't get, hold on, you can't get people from Oregon to want to be in Phoenix this time of the year, because this is the only time of the year where they have sun, and they come here, and they go, hell is real. So would you guys go ahead and give Kim a warm welcome? Well, good morning. We got in uh, midday yesterday, and then uh, last night at about midnight, um, I realized it was still really hot. <laughs> and uh, Pete and I started talking that if uh, global warming is real, then you guys are in trouble. Um, you got to start looking for property elsewhere. Um, hey, it's really good to be with you guys, uh, friends with Ricardo and with Jim, and it's fun to, to be able to come down and see a part of what they're up to and just hearing all the good stories and to kind of finally be here and uh, take that context in. There was a game last night. Ricardo dropped us off, Pete and I, at some wine bar on campus. It was empty because college kids don't drink wine, um, I guess. Uh, but it was fun to kind of be back in a college environment and game day environment. I went to Clemson for six years to get an undergrad. And uh, it's the only time I've ever been taken into custody. I had forgotten all about it. hadn't remembered it in about 25 years and. Uh, and I remembered, it, I remembered it last night, but uh, it was after one of the football games my freshman year, and, and we were trying to tear down the goalposts, and uh, the police got there and kept everyone from getting to the goalposts except for me. My friends threw me up, and it's pretty high up, uh, and I grabbed onto the, the goalpost, and then I had a policeman on each leg trying to pull me, and it, and it started swaying the goalpost, and it was broken all week at an angle, and uh, everyone at school was talking about it. Um, and that story will not be told to my four daughters. So that's uh, why I love guest speaking. Um, I, can, I can share whatever I want. And if I mess you all up, uh, Ricardo has to deal with it on Monday. 
I don't have to hear about it. It's all, all good. Does somebody have an iPhone up here that's got like a timer on it? Anybody? A helpful person? No helpful people in this. Um, can you like set a timer? I don't have a clock to look at. So when I get to about an hour and 20, can you? Um, no, seriously, can you at, a, at about 40 minutes, can you give me a sign? And if I'm, if I'm being boring, you can lie. <laughs> Just shut me down. Um, let's pray, and then we'll jump into it. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can gather together as believers and to wrestle with the text, wrestle with your words to us. Um, and uh, we have been given everything for life and godliness in your son, Christ Jesus. And we want to embrace that this morning. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I, I usually use the NIV when I teach, uh, NIV translation. I realize you guys use the ESV after the first service, so I'm in a new Bible, and if, if any of you know what I'm talking about, uh, I know where everything is in my Bible, like by where it is on the page. So if I, uh, nice, thank you. Uh-huh, all right, um, so forgive me if I, if I stumble in finding something. I'm trying to make sure I read out of your guys' translation. But so the text, uh, you heard it. Let's just read it again. It's, we're in the Sermon on the Mount series here. And it's Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 13. And it says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if, uh, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under uh, people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill cannot be hidden, and nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that, you, so that they may see your good works and give glory to God, uh, God your Father who is in heaven. So this passage is fascinating. Jesus is teaching. He's, uh, he's kind of beginning his ministry to proclaim all of what he thinks is true or wants to communicate to be true about faith in God, about religion, about what, what it means to live rightly. And he kind of points out this, this very key fact up front that for him, he's coming to make uh, the normative thing about life include our love for other people. I mean, make no mistake about this. You cannot talk about Jesus or following Jesus or being a disciple of Jesus or being a Christian or anything Jesus if you don't understand love as being the absolute central thing to what it is he's communicating to people. Jesus sums up all the other commands and he says that love really encompasses them. He says, I came to give you a new command and the new command is love. He says the greatest commands are to love God and then the second greatest would be to love like the first, is to love your neighbor as yourself. For Jesus, love, which is a sacrificial giving of yourself for the benefit of others, giving your life away, that we might find mutual happiness, not individual happiness, that this is central kind of to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is here in the Sermon on the Mount, right up front saying, your good deeds, your actions, your works, the things that you do in the world to make this the right kind of place, to bring about shalom, to make it as God intended it to be, those good works need to be made manifest. That should be happening in the world. And, 
And uh, it's, it's nonsensical to think that you as a person of light, that you would have the light of God in you, that you'd be trying to live according to truth, that, that somehow that goodness wouldn't emanate from you. And so he uses this first metaphor of salt. And salt was used as a fertilizer back then. And uh, it's an agricultural area. It's in the breadbasket, so to speak. If you've ever gone to Africa, starting in Ethiopia, Kenya, you have the Great Rift Valley, this massive kind of um, split in the plates that goes all the way up through the Middle East and then uh, runs along the Jordan River Valley. So the reason the Dead Sea is one of the lowest, I think the lowest place on on planet Earth is because it's literally in this rift, this split in the plates. And so the Jordan River runs along that and and it has this climate that makes it incredibly good when you get up around the Sea of Galilee. So you have people that are understanding the fertilizer properties of salt. And when you put salt on soil, it was a a compound. The water would come in. The saltiness, the good part, would would go into the soil. But you'd get the residue. You ever seen someone sweat a lot? And, you know, like they wear their ball cap. They've been wearing it since they were like 13. And they're now 50 and they're still wearing the same ball cap. And there's that, you know, residue, kind of salty residue. When when the salt kind of goes in, you get the residue and it's and it's... It basically tells you that the good part has already gone and, and what you're left is, is the residue. So that's a, one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is the same thing in your house using salt. Uh, they used salt back then for a lot of different things. You could put it on the wick of a, of a lantern and it would make it burn brighter. Uh, you could do lots of things with salt. But again, once the salt had lost its value and you're left with kind of all of the other compounds, you throw it out because trash was thrown out in those days onto the street. You basically throw it out and the only good is for it to be trampled underfoot. So in other words, when it doesn't have the essential dynamic portion to it, it's actually worthless. You, if you don't have love in your heart... um, it sounds a little harsh to say you're actually worthless, but I, you know, that's kind of, from a metaphorical standpoint, <laughs> you're worthless. You're, you're worthless. And, uh, and Jesus goes on in John 15 to kind of say the same kind of thing, that if you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. And, and if you don't remain in me, you will bear no fruit. And, and the only good for branches that die and bear no fruit is to gather them up and to use them as fuel for the fire. Like there's no value anymore to a branch when it's disconnected from the source that gives it life and, and allows for fruit to come. And then it goes right into saying what, G, what it is that Jesus is wanting in John 15 and it's love. So the love that should come out of you, we love because he first loved us. The love of Christ compels us to love. All throughout the New Testament, we get this idea that love is coming in and it should beget love. Love begets love. Grace begets love, or I'm sorry, grace begets grace. And we all know that a critical environment just spawns uh, negativity. A gracious environment spawns graciousness. And this idea of it flowing through us so that we are going to be productive or, or, or whole people as we love others. The next metaphor that goes on as he's, he's doing this Sermon on the Mount is this idea of light. So I've got a picture uh, two pictures, actually. We'll show the first, and it's kind of the hillside that Jesus ends up on on the left there, and then the Sea of Galilee, and uh, it's an amazing place. It's not near as big as you think it is. Uh, I had the first 
the opportunity to go there about three years ago for the first time and love just what it was was able to kind of do for me to walk around where Jesus walked and to kind of all of a sudden uh, visualize so many of the Bible stories that I've heard uh, most of my life. So if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, do. And so this is kind of looking one way. This is an aerial view looking down on the Mount of Beatitudes. So the Mount of Beatitudes has a church on it like most uh, kind of sacred Christian places. Uh, Constantine's mom ran around most of the, the, the ancient world and kind of started building churches on sacred sites. And that's kind of been the tradition moving forward. So you have a church here. It's very serene. It's the Mount of Beatitudes. Uh, so it's, it's got gardens. It's got solitude places. It's a beautiful, quiet space um, in the picture. But in reality, if you backed out just a little bit, about 100 uh, yards over is the parking lot where there's about 30 buses. And, you know, they don't ever turn those things off. They just idle like the, t- the big tour buses. So it's not near as like, quiet as you, as you think. Um, so if you picture Jesus teaching here, he's here, he's teaching the multitudes. Now you're in an interesting spot. So off to the left, you've got Capernaum, which is where Jesus went when he left Nazareth. Nazareth is where Jesus is from. It's where his dad was a carpenter. Nazareth is down to the right, a good ways, a couple days walk or about an hour and a half drive. And it's, it's toward the Mediterranean uh, sea or coast. And so Nazareth, Jesus was rejected. Remember, a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. He comes and he's doing his ministry here. But this mountain is in in many ways outside of the cities where Jesus wasn't necessarily accepted. And on the crossroads of where people from Nazareth who were coming down there to hear him would have have been able to access. So you kind of have this nice meeting place here and he's going to teach the multitudes. Now the fascinating thing is uh, in those days, you didn't have microphones, you didn't have speakers, and so people would sit down and it would become an all-day affair. That's why in other places, we see that Jesus taught, uh, and then late into the day, they were like, hey, people are hungry, and Jesus is like, well, feed them. They're like, we don't have any food, and then you get the miracles of Jesus feeding literally thousands of people, and that's because to to do an all-day teaching here without amplification, uh, in the ancient world, uh, they would teach, and, and people that are sitting in small groups in the grass, extending far out, would begin to relay the teaching onward. So, so somebody would teach, and then those groups would kind of pass it back to the others, and it would kind of be this process of proclaiming what it is that, that's your doctrine as a religious figure or as a teacher, Okay, so Jesus, considered to be a prophet here, and people are coming to hear him, he's teaching, and then that teaching is going out to the multitudes. That's why with an all-day kind of sermon, what we get is this very short amount of text in the Bible. It's just just the Sermon on the Mount. It's very short. Um, That's what's so funny. Pete was joking with me. He's like, you're going to give a long sermon on on a short sermon of Jesus and on an even shorter um, chunk of scripture, like from within that sermon. So you're going to take a, a small piece of a, of a short sermon and turn it into a long sermon. And I was like, yeah, that's what I do. I'm a pastor. <laughs> and, uh, and so you have this interesting setting. So Jesus is talking about the saltiness, and you can see uh, that this is fertile land. And then he also says, and a city on a hill cannot be hidden. So just off to the left and up is the highest point in Israel. And it's a, a town, uh, the pronunciation is something like Safet, 
Uh, I probably pronounced it wrong. It looks like um, safe with a D on the end. S-A-F-E-D. That's the name of the town. It's one of the four holy kind of cities in Israel here. And it has a commanding view of everything. It's the, it's the highest point. It's about 3,000 feet up. It's, it's the highest point in Israel. And so back in those days, you didn't have artificial lights. And so at night, if anyone in that city on that hill lit a fire, you would see it. Um, anyone would be able to see it from the surrounding area. The only way you wouldn't be able to see it is if somebody, like, covered it up. But why in the world would you cover up a fire on a, city, you know, on, on a hill and, and hide its light? The whole purpose is either warmth or light, and it just doesn't make any sense that you would do that. And so Jesus is saying, look, that city is on a hill. You can see the light, period. Unless somebody's doing the illogical thing of hiding it or whatever, you can see that light. You claim to follow Jesus... What he's, or, or you claim to these people to believe in God, what he's really saying is, then, then ipso facto, as a necessity, people should be able to look at you and see your good deeds. It, it just, unless something illogical is happening, good deeds should be visible from 360 degrees around you. And, and people should see that. So that's kind of what Jesus is saying in this context, and it's an interesting thing because it gets into this whole idea of good works. And good works has a, a long, uh, twisted history, certainly in Protestantism, um, as being this complicated thing we don't know what to do with. And the reason is really simple. When Martin Luther, the great reformer, basically argued with the Catholic Church, he was saying to them that our salvation comes by grace through faith, and that your doctrine, he was saying, it includes this idea that you're, you're doing good deeds and that's meriting you, earning you kind of salvation. Now, again, there's a, a view of purgatory, a strong view of purgatory in Luther's time, back in, in 1517 is when the Reformation began. And so you had this whole idea of, of going up through stages to finally arrive at paradise. Uh, so if you ever read the Divine Comedy by Dante, you get the, you get the hell, the inferno, the purgatorio, paradiso, and you, you see this progression. And, and what earns that? Well, merit. Merit earns that. So prayers for the dead earns that. Buying indulgences that the Pope blesses earns that. Doing good deeds earns that. But there's this idea of earning, and Luther said that earning is actually wrong. Um, we're saved by grace. Jesus died for our sins, and when we believe in him, then we have eternal life. And so you have this interesting tension in, in Protestantism where good deeds are seen as um, a slippery slope. If we talk about them, you know, we might begin to make people think that somehow that their works are what's really important, and it's going to cheapen grace. So we can't talk about good deeds because it's going to cheapen grace. And it's almost as if saying we're saying... Like, we can't talk about love because somehow that's going to cheapen Jesus. Did that hit you as strange? Because it should. The problem is in reacting to something and going to an extreme, we actually lose truth. You know, I teach my daughters all the time, truth is found in the middle. Um, Book of Ecclesiastes says uh, it's good to hold on to the one and not let go of the other. The one who fears God avoids all extremes. There's usually, I mean, I, I, I don't even talk about politics in my own church. Um, 
But if I were to talk about politics, like, aren't you hungry for somebody in the middle? Like, anyways. Um, but so, so this idea that somehow, like, we shouldn't talk about good deeds because it's going to cheapen grace is, is like saying we should, we should be careful about talking about love because somehow we're going to overshadow Jesus. And here we come to Jesus going, you can't understand me and what I'm coming to say to you if people aren't seeing love emanating from you. That, that your good deeds are a part of, of who you were created to be. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. You're not going to beat me there, so I'll just read it for you. It says this, For we are God's workmanship. Okay, God made you. You were created to do good works, which God prepared beforehand, and that you should walk in them. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's fascinating. Um, so Jesus is basically starting the Sermon on the Mount, and he's saying in the Beatitudes that everything is flipped, that in, in the way the world kind of has it, that the more stuff you have, the better off you are, the more pleasure you get, the happier, like more kind of satisfied you're going to be, the more happiness or, or uh, like experience or, or singing of songs that are going on in your life, the better than if you're mourning. And, and he's, you know, the world has it this whole way, and that's where you should really be aiming and where you're going to find happiness. And Jesus starts by just saying, no, it's actually the other way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Not who hunger and thirst for pleasure, hunger and thirst for power, hunger and thirst for wealth. It's hunger and thirst for righteousness because they're going to be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And he's going on here, and he's doing something really interesting. He's saying that the way of the kingdom is actually the, the opposite. It's inverted from the way of the world. So I'm telling you right off the bat, it's not about your self-centeredness. It's not about your individualism. It's not about your consumerism. Do not walk through life, like Paul said, with, with your God, uh, your stomach as your God, worshiping your appetites, that your wants, wishes, and desires would somehow be what dominates where you go and what you commit to. It's not about you. And when you make it about something bigger than yourself, other than yourself, that's actually where you're going to find true happiness. What Jesus is saying is revolutionary, by the way, and we don't know what to do with it. So the Beatitudes are crazy because we get a word here, um, blessed, that we don't ever use in normal English. How many of you have used the word blessed in the last month? Last year? So why is it in a, a modern translation of our Bible? See, see, the translations we use are recent translations put into our vernacular, meaning the way we talk now. And here's a, a word, a phrase that's going down and, and nobody uses it. Well, it's a safe word because the actual word um, here is happiness. So the Beatitudes, uh, the Latin beati, uh, B-E-A-T-I, uh, which, which is at the root of um, the Beatitudes, beatific vision that medieval scholars used to talk about when you get to heaven, this beatific vision. 
uh, and, and it all kind of comes from here. That root in Latin is happiness. So even the Beatitudes, why is this name the Beatitudes? We don't see the word Beatitude anywhere in here. It's that for almost 1,200, 1,300 years of the church, this sacred text was in Latin. And, the, and it wasn't in anyone else's language. The, the Catholic Church, up until the time of the Reformation, their Bible was Latin. And so these were, uh, were spoken in a Latin way. So the word wasn't blessed. It was variations of this word beatitude. So we title it the Beatitudes because that's how the church traditionally has come to know it. We use the word blessed because the word happy just doesn't ring true to us. And we don't know what to do with that. And I want to explain that briefly because I think it's really important. The way we use the word happy today, uh, really for the last hundred years maybe, is different than the way that it was classically understood. When you go out and use the word happy, uh, you're probably using it as a synonym of pleasure. Okay? About your felt experience. You know, this lollipop, and my daughters, you know, like, why do you want a lollipop? It'll make me happy. Like, that's, that's how we use happy now. Okay? For much of human history, uh, the word happiness, the concept of happiness, was used much more synonymously with, with what we would probably use the word joy, which was more of a state of being, not really dependent on our circumstances. So for Aristotle, ironically, uh, he thought you couldn't attain happiness or a happy life when you were young. He felt like you needed to grow into understanding life, maturity, virtue, and that when you became older, then you could have a happy life because you had all of the things that were necessary to know what life was really about and then to live accordingly. Strange. Um, But this is the way that happiness was understood by uh, the church fathers. St. Augustine used it this way. Um, I can just read his quote real quick. And so Augustine, the way he framed it, was really saying that God and our relationship with God is where the source of happiness comes. He says, it's not earthly riches that make our sons happy, for they must either be lost by us in our lifetime or be possessed when we are dead, by whom we know not or perhaps by whom we would not. But it is God who makes us happy, who is the true riches of minds. It is God who makes us happy, who is the true riches of minds. Or as Aquinas would say, uh, God alone constitutes our chief happiness. And so you get this interesting thing where for much of Christian history, happiness was a wonderful virtue. C.S. Lewis says it this way, it's every Christian's duty to be as happy or he, or as uh, he or she can be. In other words, not happier than you can be, but as happy as you can be. And sometimes when you walk around and see Christians, you're like, oh my gosh, you're purposely miserable. I don't know where that came from, but you think it makes you look godly or spiritual to just be miserable, you know, to be legalistic, to judge people, to just go around and and everything is bad. And Lewis is like, no, that's not good. Like, that's actually not the way God designed it to be. We are children of God. He wants us to be as happy as we can be. Um, And so happiness, not a bad virtue. Uh, here's how I wrote about it. There are two ways we can seek happiness, either at the expense of others or in growing the goodness of others. The first builds me up at your expense, generating mutual insecurity and or retaliation, while the second builds us uh, both up together. The second is the, the kingdom happiness that Jesus calls complete joy that lacks nothing. 
the kind that naturally produces right actions and genuine love. The reality is that our happiness, God's glory, and loving our neighbor are all bound together. And when we realize this, pursuing justice, however difficult it may be, begins to capture our attention and effort in a holistic way. So you get this interesting thing in the Beatitudes. Jesus is talking about biblical happiness. And then he says, look, your good deeds necessarily should emanate from you. And that when this happens, other people give glory to God who is in heaven. Do you see how this all unifies? My joy is bound to your well-being, which is a part of my worship. My joy is bound to your well-being, which is a part of my worship. Um, one last thing on the happiness train. When, uh, when John Locke wrote in the 1600s, you basically had kings who used Scripture to, to say that they had the divine right of kings, meaning that their word should be law or should be the rule, or they should be able to do it whatever they want. To a degree in England, it was a bit curtailed than maybe some other countries um, because of Magna Carta and kind of uh, other things throughout history. But, but this was the sovereign king that, that seemed to be a law unto himself. And so John Locke was trying to hammer out a better understanding of government. And so he said, look, people, we, have, have rights by virtue of being made in the image of God, by, by virtue of being human persons. And those rights really can be put into three camps, can be put into life, meaning you can't really lawfully deprive me of my life, kill me, uh, without it being murder, unless for some reason I deserve it, like I've killed someone else or something else like that. So you, you don't have a right to take my life. You also don't have a right to take my liberty. You can't incarcerate me or keep me uh, a slave, put me in a certain place where, where I don't have the freedom to move about like, like a human being should, should be able to move about. And property. You don't have the right to just come in and deprive me of my property, take my property, because as John Locke was writing in an agrarian culture, my property, where I have my home that keeps me warm and keeps me safe, the, the earth that I plant crops in, that I'm able to, to, to get the food for my family to provide, th- this property is where I'm able to flourish. You can't just deprive me of my, fro- my property and then take away from it my security and my means to human flourishing. Does that make sense? So this is what John Locke is saying. Um, property, when the Israelites came out of, the, of Egypt as slaves, God led them into the what? The promised? And it was flowing with milk and honey, and he was going to plant them there. And if they were obedient, he was going to bless them. And in blessing them, they were able to flourish, not only them, but the the strangers and immigrants that would come to their land, and they would be able to live the right kind of life there in in joy, in right relationship, and and in right relationship with God. And so this land is incredibly symbolic, right? Property, incredibly symbolic. Uh, We get to the time of the Declaration of Independence, and what, what Thomas Jefferson does is kind of um, go with a more rhetorical flair, and he does life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, I've, I've in my lifetime heard the pursuit of happiness used in, in, uh, before Congress as a defense for pornography or, or that industry, that, that people have a right to basically do whatever they want because it's guaranteed, Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of happiness. That is not at all what is meant there. 
So, so Jefferson, who likened himself a scholar and had one of the biggest libraries going for, for anyone at that point in time, was using happiness synonymous with property. That the pursuit of happiness means that the unencumbered ability to pursue human flourishing, that you have the right to flourish as a human, the pursuit of happiness. And he's using that to mean the exact same thing as the protection of property, that you have the right to be unencumbered to develop yourself kind of as a human in that way. Now, Jefferson, uh, we won't get into all the inconsistencies there, but that point of what was meant by happiness is incredibly crucial because I think we can't recover a biblical view of happiness, what I would call godly happiness, until we stop thinking of, of happiness as a four-letter word in, in Christian circles. Does that make sense? So Jesus is doing this crazy thing and flipping it all upside down. Now, the other thing that's happening here is, is these good deeds or the concept of justice is beginning to work itself in uh, in all the nooks and crannies of this Sermon on the Mount. And it's incredibly important to understand this um, because the way we read it in our English Bible leads to a misunderstanding that I think is profound. A misunderstanding that I think is profound. Jesus goes and says... Uh, at the end of 524 that, um, there's five. Uh, so verses 20, chapter 5, verse 20, he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus brings in this concept of righteousness. He's saying this, these good deeds, this religion, this faith that I want you to live has to be bigger than formula, has to be bigger than ceremony. Like your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, what does righteousness mean? We have taken it. I'm a Gen Xer, so that means I grew up uh, in the 80s during uh, the, t- the time of... Uh, bad music, um, good music, and the moral majority. Uh, And the moral majority colored the way Scripture was passed down to me, okay? So righteousness, when I grew up, I perceived it as meaning my own personal piety or my own personal kind of holiness in my relationship with God. Does that sound familiar? The degree of zeal and and energy that I put into maintaining this relationship with God. Does that, does that ring true to anybody else? Raise your hand just because I need something to go off of here. Um, so that's kind of the way it still is taught, frankly. If, if, this is the way righteousness comes across. And the interesting thing about that view of righteousness is it's exactly the view of righteousness that the Pharisees had. It's exactly the view of righteousness that, that God rails against in Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, just because some of you might not have ever read it or heard it, let's just power through it real quick. Listen to what God says in Isaiah 58. Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, their sins. They seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness. So they have zeal, passion. They lift their hands in worship. They put all their energy into it. They do these things. As if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment or justice of God. They ask me of righteous judgment. They delight to draw near to me. And here ask God, why have, 
why they say, why have we fasted and God doesn't see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and God doesn't take any knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all of your workers. So we get workers' rights here. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a a wicked fist. Competition. Um, Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it... Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? In other words, your energy, your emotion, when you come to church or when you go to spiritual places, you're like, I really wish, God, you would make my life better. I, I, I mean, I'm coming to you to make my life better. Aren't I good that I'm coming to you with all of my desire and energy that you would make me better and my life better? And, and can't you hear me? Why won't you hear me? Why won't you answer my prayers? This is the kind of thing that God's talking about. And it says, is this, now he's going to flip it, is this the fast that I choose to loose the bounds, uh, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it... Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and to not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. So, so God is basically saying righteousness is not this personal thing between you and God. He's saying righteousness is the right relationship with God, self, others, and creation. God, self, others, and creation. And that that kind of righteousness that goes out into the world and gives, uh, gives our lives away, sacrificial love, that's when God says, now that's spirituality. Now, why do we end up with this crazy, um, strange misunderstanding? It's because, and you might have heard a little bit of this last week uh, with Ricardo, but the The English here for the word righteousness doesn't show up in the Bible. The Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Koine Greek. The New Testament was. And so the word isn't righteousness. There's a Greek word beneath it, and that word is dikaiosune. Dikaiosune. And the question is, what does the word dikaiosune mean? And the word dikaiosune can mean either synonymously uh, righteousness as taking in its full sense or justice taken in its full sense. In fact, if, if we have any Spanish speakers here, does anyone have a Spanish Bible or read a Spanish Bible? I don't see a hand. Um, there's not the word righteousness in the Spanish Bible. There's only the word justicia. Justicia. And my working theory is that why social justice took so much more root in South America than North America is because the Bible that Christians are reading in South America doesn't have the word righteousness, which allows me to say, well, I don't need to do that justice stuff. The guys with the dreadlocks that are into that can go do that. I'm going to go to the Bible studies, um, and and I'm going to pursue righteousness with God. Complete false distinction that doesn't exist. But in in the Spanish Bible, it's just uh, justicia. There's no two words. There's one word. And so it's kind of fascinating. And so this, this concept of dikaiosune being both righteousness and justice, just to underscore it, I have a coin. It took me a whole summer to get. Um, bought it from a guy in Germany. And here's the front of the coin. And uh, it has Nero's head on it. It was minted in Alexandria, but it has Nero's head on it. What does Nero's head on it tell us? It's a Roman coin. 
And it also gives us the what? The year, the date, the time period. So this coin with Nero's head on it minted the same time that Paul is writing the, the letter to the Roman church, uh, to the church at Rome. And in the book of Romans, we see, we see the word righteousness all over the place, which really means that Paul was using what word? Dikaiosune, right? So what does the word righteousness or dikaiosune mean in the New Testament time of Paul? Um, here we've got this coin. On the flip side, we get... The goddess Justicia with the scales in one hand and a sheath of wheat in the other. Now, the founders of uh, the United States were really into this neoclassical thing. They loved, they had this romantic view of the old Roman Empire. That's why we have a Senate, like they had a Senate. It's why if you go to D.C., all of the architecture is neoclassical. Architecture looks like ancient Rome. So we borrowed Our Lady Liberty from the goddess Justicia. So the Lady Liberty um, has this kind of thing or, or uh, in front of uh, the courts, you've got the blindfold and you've got the scales. But all this borrowed from the goddess Justicia has the scales of justice. Now the sheath of wheat is really interesting because this particular coin minted in Alexandria was a food ration coin. It was a food ration coin for poor people to get grain. So the, thus the sheath of wheat. So it was a social justice coin, if you will. Okay? Interesting thing, it was right above her head. You guys are a college town. You know how to read Greek letters. Um, you see the delta there, dikaiosune. So dikaiosune doesn't maybe just mean social justice or justice, but we certainly can't take that word and abstract out of it a tight meaning of just my relationship, personal piety with God. This is a very social concept, a very social word. We don't have a positive sense of the word justice in American culture. You know that we have 8% of America's, uh, of the world's population, and we have 25% of the world's prisoners? 25% of the world's prisoners with just 8% of the world's population. We love punitive justice. But punitive justice is, if it doesn't have an idea of what it's supposed to get back to, doesn't even, doesn't even make sense. So there's a positive side to justice when things are as they ought to be. And there's a, a negative side to justice when something should be rectified that is broken or wrong. Or, like social justice, something that's broken or wrong that's nobody's fault really. But because we love other people, we come into it and we try and bring it back to the way it ought to be with our love of others, with our care for those who are poor, the orphan, the widow, uh, and, and the alien that we see all, all the way through the Old Testament. So justice is as things are as they ought to be, right? Relationship with God, self, others, and creation. And, and social justice. By the way, I, I, I mean, just define it because I think it needs to happen. Like, we are so skittish about social justice in the church. And if justice matters to God, then all forms of justice matter. And when we talk about criminal justice, we're talking about just like think of a pie with slices of pies. You know, you guys call it town again. Pizza, you get it. Um, Criminal justice is the slice of justice that, that has to do with law and order. International justice is the slice of justice that has to do with how two sovereign countries interact with each other. Business law and ethics is maybe how justice should operate in corporations so that they function in a way that's fair and equitable, okay? Social justice 
or justice in society. By the way, social justice is a term that was coined by a Catholic priest in 1848. It's a a Christian concept at the beginning. So justice in society, when we're talking about um, the immigrant or the poor or or other things that happen in society, um, that's a slice of the pie. And we could keep going on and giving other slices of the pie. So if you don't like social justice, what you actually don't like is certain policies that certain people have to enact social justice. What you should say is, I love social justice because God loves all forms of justice. I disagree with your policies. I don't think they're going to actually benefit society the way that you think they are. And if you disagree with someone's policies, what's the very next thing that you should have ready? An alternative. So the funny thing about the people that I run into that are against social justice, when I tell them what you're actually against is certain policies, like they finally admit that. And I'm like, so then what are your ideas if, if this is so bad? Well, I never really thought of it. Um, social justice is all throughout the Bible. We need to learn to define things better and not just throw away language. We don't throw away the word love because in the 70s, the hippies had this idea of free love. We define love. And I don't throw away the word God because some people that don't believe in God use it in vain. I define how I use it and use it with reverence. If you don't like the phrase social justice, redefine it in its Christian sense, the way it was first coined, and then argue what you mean by it. Does that make sense? So here's two things that come from that. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I was raised to believe that this meant that if a good Christian went to high school and didn't cuss and was teased, that it was, it was all good because Jesus was happy. Or that if you took a, a vow of abstinence, which is not bad or wrong or anything, and you were teased for your moral stance, that Take heart, Jesus is, is very happy with you. It's a very moral, majority-driven understanding of this text. Jesus was persecuted, was he not? He died on a, on a rough wooden cross outside the city gate where all of the pilgrims coming to Jerusalem for the Passover were walking by. He was not just hung there, he died there. Jesus would have seen this all throughout his life, the, the Roman persecution uh, he experienced persecution from his own, uh, those of his own faith. The Jewish leaders beat him. Okay? Jesus understands persecution. He's not talking about being teased for not using cuss words. Uh, in, in Phnom Penh, I spent some time with an organization or some friends that do recovery ministry for girls coming out of sex trafficking. Um, and in Phnom Penh, there's a big part of that, which is organized crime. You're exploiting young girls. By the way, to, to try and rehabilitate girls with PTSD coming out of that, teenagers, it's incredibly difficult. And, and these people, these teenagers, aren't doing this of their own volition because somehow their view of the world makes them want to do this. They're being exploited by a system and, or by structures that are making a profit off them. If you go to New York City right now and go to Times Square, anybody been there recently? The whole thing is, is that young girls are painted in, in a G-string but naked the rest of, of their bodies, painted like the American flag. And they've somehow got it to where it's a part of protected free speech under art. 
And so the police will be right there and won't make them do anything. And they're making money off of tourists that are coming to New York City and going to get their picture with this girl completely naked but painted uh, over with body paint, okay? And they get money or they give money, get a picture, and, and isn't this wonderful? And when you look at that, if you look at the situation, you'll see always within about 20, 30 feet a man. What's that man doing there? See, they work for that man. And that man is responsible for them and taking the profit from them. And these girls are vulnerable enough that they're willing to do this because that's the means by which this man or those people are going to let them have food and lodging and everything else, right? I mean, it's, it's systems. It's not, it's not that some girl just goes to New York and thinks this will be fun. So when you press into, in Phnom Penh, if you press into organized crime, what does organized crime do? It pushes back. If you push into organized crime, organized crime pushes back. And it usually looks like death threats or eventually, in, in this case, taking one of the workers and beating up a worker as a warning sign that, that we will kill you. And so you have a person there with a family and with children beginning to wrestle in prayer. And can you imagine the emotion? God, I am, I am pursuing justice, trying to love the most vulnerable. And, and the threats that are coming, the pushback that is coming, is so hard to bear. What do I do? Where are you in this? And Jesus promises what? Blessed are those who are persecuted for justice' sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted for justice' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If anybody's going to own real estate in heaven, it's going to be those people. There's a promise that comes with that. If you turn over uh, one more page to Matthew chapter 6. I'm sorry, just look over at the different page. In my other Bible, you would have turned. Um, Matthew chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their full reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and that your Father who sees in secret will reward you. According to Jesus, what are acts of righteousness? Bible study, reading spiritual growth books, giving to the needy. Your acts of dikaiosune, your acts of justice. It's the right thing, but don't do it for, for personal gain. Don't do it for selfish motives. Don't go to Facebook and, and try and make anti-trafficking your brand mark. Because you, you need to brand yourself so you have an identity in this world. Don't, uh, I'm speaking to the, the white folks in this room don't travel. If, if you haven't gone in the last two years to the kids' ministry here at Redemption and taken a picture of yourself sitting in the middle of 20 kids because it's so cool to be surrounded by little kids, don't fly to Africa, plant yourself in the middle of 20 black bodies and post that picture on Instagram. Because what are you perpetuating by somehow saying this picture of me in this group of black faces somehow... Um, as the altruistic savior or as the Messiah come into that place or really kind of holding, I, I mean, think very carefully about what you're doing, right? Do not do your acts of justice in front of people to be seen by them. When you give, 
Hide it because God knows that you're giving your life away. By the way, in, in Habakkuk, when it says the righteous will live by their faith, it's picked up again in Romans and, and in Galatians. That The rendering here again is, and if you want to just say righteousness slash justice and reread the New Testament, you'll get kind of the, the import of it. But uh, the King James and the New King James just simply render it, the just will live by their faith. Those who are giving their life away for others, who begin to look to the left and the right and go, this doesn't really make sense. I'm not getting ahead. All my friends seem to, to be going further in life. You know, I, I don't have what they have. I don't get to go where they go. I just keep giving my life away. God, this, is this really going to work out? I don't see how this is going to work out. And God says, yes, because the just who are giving their life away, loving sacrificially, do it by their faith with the promise that I will take care of them. So you continue on because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Just to show you how messed up our understanding of justice is in this world, uh, I have four daughters, and, and we were back to school shopping a couple years ago, and I took this picture of a shirt that, I mean, I was sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting like a typical dad getting bored. And then all of a sudden I saw this shirt, and it caught my eye, and I thought, oh, my gosh, it's a brand mark. Not only that, but the, the message here is, is love yourself um, for seven-year-olds with the shirt made in Vietnam by seven-year-olds because of cheap labor. And I thought, we have so consumerized our understanding of the world that we are no longer salty, that our light is so confused that it doesn't really shine the way it should, that somehow we need to be liberated out from that and remember that you can't talk about Jesus without talking about love and that we were created uh, in Christ Jesus to do good works that God has prepared for us beforehand and that we can run wholeheartedly into this life knowing that it's an upside-down reality and that somehow this is where we're going to find our true happiness. We're going to find intimacy with God and that he will take care of us and we will truly be, in that wonderful archaic word, blessed. Blessed. Father, we commit this morning to you. May you grow our faith May you give us a stronger desire for godly happiness than worldly pleasure. May you connect our fate with that of our, our brother and sister, our own flesh, as it said in this passage. May you help us understand that the kind of worship you want is a full body worship, not just on Sundays, not just in religious places, but that moves out into the city and transforms it with a light that cannot be hidden. So we commit this... Uh, to you and your son's precious name. Amen.